the cross of Jesus, we will gladly live our lives. It really is the intent of the text this morning. As we begin back in Colossians, um, I would encourage you to uh, bear with me this morning as we review the concepts that have been brought forward, particularly of our death and life. So um, part of the reason it's bearing with me or with Paul is that he has been quite repetitive and uh, redundant in the theme. And that's been intentional and leads us to texts like the one we have this morning. So consider with me one more time the concept of death and life in Colossians. It all begins with Christ in chapter 1. Because Christ died in chapter 1 verse 20. He accomplished peace through the blood of His cross. And in verses 21 and 22, He accomplishes reconciliation in the body of His flesh, through death. So we have our own death grounded first in the death of Christ. And then in the Christ hymn in chapter 1, He also grounds life in the person of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 18, that Christ is the firstborn from the dead. So the themes are established. Christ died and Christ rose. Important historical redemptive acts, are they not? But then he begins weaving our own lives into those acts of redemption. In chapter 1, verse 13, we were delivered from the power of darkness, and verse 13, conveyed into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Particularly in chapter 2, chapter 2, verse 12, that we were buried with Christ in baptism. And verse 12 again, and we were raised with Him through faith. Verses 13, verse 13 of chapter 2, being dead, He made us alive. We were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of our flesh, and He has made us alive together with Him, having forgiven us. And then He took those principles And in verse 20, which is where we began the reading this morning, he took the principle of death with Christ and now moves it from a concept or a theological idea toward a practical application. So he began in verse 20, if you died, then why would you subject yourselves to this man-made religion? Why would we do that? So he's beginning to apply. It's nonsensical that if we have died with Christ, we participate in this old life or worldly religions. And then last week in chapter 3, verse 1, he not only applies, therefore, if you died, now he goes, therefore, if you were raised with Christ, then you seek those things which are above. So in the dying and raising thus far, he has primarily affected the way that we think, the way that we process this life. And he's called us to not process it according to the words of men. But instead, last week, according to the words of Christ, 
according to the mindset, the disposition, the accomplished realities of Christ, because that is where our life belongs. It's where it is hidden. And so, everything that occurs today and tomorrow and this week, rather than immediately responding in a way that we might once have, or in a way that the world would commend, we would say, who am I before Christ? What would He have me to think? What would He have me to do? How would He have me to respond? Therein we are setting our minds in the things that are above, in Christ's own mind. But it is not only in our mental or affections, the the disposition of our affections, that this plays itself out, the concept of death and life with Christ. Here, in the next two sections, you look with me in verse 5, we're looking at 5 through 11 this morning, where he says, therefore, put to death your members. And already you would anticipate the theme of which one? Well, the theme of, of death. If we've done, and he's going to ground it once again. Again, patience with Paul, patience with me, encouragement in this truth. May we walk from Colossians with this running through our minds repetitively. So this morning is, is, is a meditation, a, an application of how being dead with Christ affects not our mind, but our activity. How does death with Christ affect what we do? And then next week, therefore, verse 12, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies. So how does the life of Christ affect what we do next week? So this death and life, it not only affects our our internal processing, but also our external activity. One and one, quite clearly, even in the book, flows from the other one. So that's all these, these logical connections, these therefore, therefore, based. it's all based back to linking us with the redemptive act of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. So this morning, verses 5 through 11, what, let's look at the structure of this text. There are three imperatives in the text. So we're moving more toward that style in the book. We looked at it last week, you know, two imperatives and then a few grounds supporting the imperatives. A very similar style this morning. Three imperatives. Number one, put to death your members. Imperative number two, put off all of these. Imperative number three, do not lie to one another. So the three commands in the text. And what you'll see here is that immediately following imperative number one, therefore put to death your members, he gives a virtue or vice list. Virtues are coming next week. This week, a vice list. Five vices. Immediately following that, he gives two theological grounds. Why should we do this? Why should we put off these five vices? He gives two grounds. Now, keep these two things in mind, because in the next imperative, but now you yourselves are to put off all these five vices. No grounding in this one, because the grounding comes following the third one. So number two is five vices. Number three, then he gives two 
more grounds. Okay? So, first imperative, five vices, two theological grounds. Second imperative, five vices. Third imperative, two grounds. So, he's following the same pattern, but split between two imperatives. And then, this concept of the new man expands in two very important ways. The renewal and the unity of the new man. Okay? You've noticed already, I am sure, that all three of these vices are very similar. That we would not do certain things. That we would put off certain things. And that is the application of Christ's death in our activity. Let's pray. God, we need your help this morning. Your Spirit is in us. The Spirit of Christ indwells us. And for that, we are truly grateful. We are humbled. And it gives us great confidence as we open the words that He Himself spoke 2,000 years ago. And these are eternal principles. These are eternal truths. And so we thank You for them. We ask that as we approach them, we would approach with, with humility, that we would approach with genuine converted hearts, and that we would be ready, ready to acknowledge our sin again and again, not for the sake of justification, but for the sake of walking in a way that pleases you for what you have done for us. Thank you, God, for these truths. Guide us into them according to your will, through your Spirit, and in so doing, accomplish the end of this text, which is renewing us in the new humanity, in the new man, according to the image of Jesus himself. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. We're going to look first at the three imperatives, since they are similar. Spend a moment on application, and then consider the ground, why we would do these things that Paul, or why Paul says we should do these things. So first, put to death your members which are on the earth. That's an interesting church growth strategy, isn't it? Put to death your members. The members here is uh, a reference to our body. So our members would be that which composes us our hands and our eyes and our ears, our limbs, our nose, our senses, all of these things. This is, these are our members. Uh, he describes this reality in other ways throughout the New Testament that we are all members of a body, right? Parts, component parts. So he says, put to death the parts of you which are on the earth. Now, all of us is on the earth. Okay, so he's not talking about members of the church, neither is he talking about our location here on the earth. He is saying that which in us is worldly, that which in us is easily identifiable as according to man, as according to the kingdom of darkness, those things in us. And the reason he uses members is because, uh, as you might remember in the Gospels, that, you know, if, if you're... I offend you, pluck it out. It is this, this idea that sin occurs through our members. It is our hands and our feet and our eyes 
not in opposition to our spirit, but flowing from that who we are, who we are inside, we have activity. There is fruit. There is demonstration of inner reality. And so those, thing, those parts of us which are animated toward wickedness, those need put to death. And he's calling for us to do this, to each one of us individually and to us corporately, that we would, and, and the language is just what it is. It is an executioner. It is cut off its head. It is dispose of the body. It is make this completely um, gone, that it has no more life. Put to death your members which are on the earth. And then in quite a dramatic fashion, uh, and in a very explicit fashion, he gives five vices in apposition to, meaning these are our members. You know which members I'm talking about? The parts of us I'm talking about are fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. I think you would probably sense a theme there that this first list of vices is primarily sexual in its orientation. That he's after the old life that manifested itself, perhaps primarily in the Greek world, in abundant sexuality, just everywhere, everywhere you turn, and it is, it is rampant. And so all of these ideas, they, they do have uh, perhaps different nuances to them. You know, fornication is maybe the one that we're familiar with. This would be the uh, porneia, that this word is... Uh, prominent in the conversation about divorce and marriage because this is the exception clause. He says, except in the case of porneia, except in the case of sexual immorality, and it's a very broad term. It's a catch-all for really anything from the young amongst us and their sexual sins and temptations to the aged amongst us and their sexual sins and temptations, the the married and the unmarried, all sorts of things. It's It's a broad catch-all category. Fornication, and then he says uncleanness, which is, uh, you would think back to the Old Testament, it is moral um, corruption, but often is associated with sexual sin. So corrupt morals. Again, you might think according to man, corrupted, base, defiled. The third one is passion. This is another word, a Greek word that we're familiar with in English. This is pathos. This is, uh, in a positive or neutral way, like emotion and uh, feeling that we want to speak, or, you know, public speaking with pathos, right? That you hear this in high school. But here he's talking about the passions that are associated with, like a Romans 1.26, same word, where God gave them over to their passions. He gave them over to their vile passions. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 through 7, brings together both of these two ideas, uh, this one and the following, passion and evil desire. Turn there, I did not jot that one down. If I can find it. Wow. I'm in the moment here. First Thessalonians. Uh, 
I literally cannot find it in my Bible. <laughs> oh, there it is. We're right. Okay, I flipped too far. My goodness. First Thessalonians 4. That's not distracting. 3 through 7. This is the will of God, your sanctification. This is really important in the conversation of the will of God regardless, because he identifies throughout Scripture specific things that he wills for us, and this is one of those texts. Related to sexual morality, he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles. Passion is the word here, then our word translated desire is lust. So they're often used together. So it's not that he's intending to say this one and that one and this one and that one. He's communicating an idea that sexual immorality is a pattern of the old life, not of the life today. And the fifth one sort of jumps out a little bit uniquely, doesn't it? Covetousness. Well, that's not explicitly sexual. One of the things that he's doing by mentioning covetousness is inviting the Decalogue, inviting the Ten Commandments into the conversation, because this is the tenth and final commandment in Exodus chapter 20. And interestingly, even there, while we think of covetousness primarily, primarily in perhaps financial terms or, you know, someone's home or their stuff, that's often how we process this greed, Exodus 20 says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. There we go. We're tracking with that. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Sexual immorality. Nor his servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So covetousness is this inappropriate desire for more. It is an internal demand for that which God has not given to you. He is the giver of good gifts. He has supplied us. And our, the call is for us to be content, to be thankful, to rejoice, to say, as the psalmist did, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. And we reiterate things from, from Colossians 1 and 2, and we say, He has transferred me from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. I have the inheritance of Christ. He's welcomed me as a son. All of these things. And we rejoice that, that he has been very generous to us. And here in this description of the perversion of our old lives, he concludes by saying, stop demanding, desiring, lusting, going after all that God in his graciousness has chosen not to give you. Don't go after that. That is an elevation of objects above the divine, which is idolatry. So we join with the brokenness of our covenant family of old. When we covet, we worship false idols. That's what's going on in our hearts. It does not mean that one is unregenerate or unjustified upon the occasion of covetousness. But it is serious, isn't it? Idolatry. So we have, you will have no other God before me and don't covet. 
the Decalogue, uh, that we're, so subtly, he's saying put off all the things. He's saying put off all the things that aren't of the commandments, right? God has called us towards something. So put off all of those things that prohibit us from doing what he has called us to do. The second command, but now you yourselves are to put off all of these. So cut off or kill, and now put off. He's moving a little bit more closely towards garment language, clothing language, which will be explicit in the cause of why we would do these things. But he says, put off all of these. And now the list is twofold. He says, anger, wrath, malice. Once again, these are not intended to be this one, that one, this one. It's together. He says anger would be this disposition, and perhaps wrath is the explosive manifestation of that disposition, and malice, which is uh, this ill intent that you don't want what is best for someone else. In fact, you want to bring down something negative upon them. So that's one of the ideas that the last two move a little bit more towards the mouth and towards the tongue. He says blasphemy and filthy language. Now, blasphemy we often think of in relationship to God, and that certainly is true, but he's moving towards a a corporate emphasis here. He's moving towards an interaction of how we treat one another. So, uh, a good way to say this would be slandering, speaking negatively, defaming God and our fellow human, not just humans, that's true, but particularly our fellow uh, believers, And then doing so perhaps in very coarse ways, in coarse language, this obscenity. And this is a a hot box. It's the only time that this filthy language word is used in the New Testament. But the idea is just just very vile. Not only is what's happening vile, blasphemy, condemning one another, but how it's happening is vile too, perhaps the manner. And so altogether, the second list of five vices is an attitude of anger and dissension and, and ill will towards each other so that often the result is this hasty and nasty speech speaking against one another. Certainly brings to mind a text like James chapter 3, the power of the tongue. It's such a little member, isn't it? Member, part of us. Such a little member, but very powerful, able to kindle a great fire. Something that, though this ought not to be, at times flows with praise toward God, flows with blessing and rejoicing, and then a moment later flows with cursing and negativity and spite and complaining against God and against each other. It's quite natural then that the third imperative is one of the tongue, (laughs) he says, do not lie to one another. Certainly, that would be a notable example of the poor use of the tongue, that we trick, deceive, hide, manipulate, cover in relationship to each other. And this really is an important phrase This is a a beautiful New Testament phrase, the one another's. Very often the commands toward the church 
are qualified in this way. And it describes the life of the community. That because, and we're, we're a one manifestation. He's talking about the church, I mean the church as a whole. But he's writing to a local assembly and certainly this relationally manifests itself in our assembly. How should we interact as fellow believers when we have disagreements, when we see things that are of the old self in somebody else? How do we move forward with that? How do we interact with each other? And he says first, don't do this. Don't lie. This is a beautiful reality between this week and next week that in as much as love is something positive and toward, it is also something that is negative, meaning it does not act in certain ways. That's demonstrated in the Ten Commandments. Many of them are negative. Um, and we would see even the Ten Commandments as largely relational in the second half. So not doing things is an expression of love. Not lying is an expression of love towards each other. So these categories, all of these vices, sexual sin said quite broadly, anger, words, deception, these four ideas. Brothers and sisters, we're done with that. That has no place in our family. And I know that we all wrestle against most, if not all, of those uniquely to ourselves and very commonly amongst each other. But all of these expressions of sexual immorality, whether it is lustful eyes, yearning for someone else's spouse, because they're better in this way or they're better in that way or yours has fallen short here or you're tired of this and looking, always looking that the grass is greener on the other side and if only maybe there was somebody else that sort of a thing that has no part in us pornography young, old, male, female this has no part in our lives looking into the nakedness and exposure of other people, yearning for something God has not given to us or to you. That has no place in our lives. We have covenant fidelity in marriages. That's an expression of the life of Christ. We are committed to our spouses, and we view one another as siblings. We view one another in a wholesome way, as someone else that was redeemed by Christ, as someone who is a part of this new body, not someone to exploit, to lie to, to take from, but someone to generously give towards, to love, not doing certain things and doing others. Anger, this criticism, this is probably even, perhaps even more Rampant, just a critical eye looking at how someone else is failing. I can't believe they would do things this way. I can't believe they said that. 
just looking at one another in that manner, or perhaps even to where it gets to the point that there is an explosion, an outburst, and you just harbor, maybe not even for everybody, but just that one, or those two, or that family, or the way they, or the way he, or the way she, and that sort of criticism doesn't have a place in our body. Our words are intended to be channels of grace, not channels of speaking behind other people's backs, bringing other people down, cutting, slashing, wounding, perhaps for the sake of a joke. We must be careful with what we say. All of this, he says, kill it. Put it off. Take it off. We're done with that life. When we sin, what we're doing metaphorically is we are raising the dead corpse of our old life and giving it a big hug. And I love you and I miss you and there's some things about you that man aren't present in the body of Christ. We're dead. It's dead. And I would say, too, that in these areas, um, a lot of these are deep in the recesses of our hearts. A lot of these are secret things, quiet things, things that people don't know about. And in some way, for good reason. Not everyone's intended to know about all of the ugliness of us. But I would just say that this is one of Pastor Matt and I's joys, is if you would like help, you say, I don't know how to kill. I feel like it has captivated me. I am unaware of how to move on. Even And the spiritual realities you're talking about in Colossians, I, I hear them and I'm just unsure of how to practice that. We would love to sit down and open God's word again. So don't feel isolated and alone like it's just in my heart. Everybody else is cruising. No, let's, let's talk. Let's talk. Let's open the word again. Why should we do this? Now, he's already grounded it. It's no surprise. He's grounded it all throughout the book, right? Because of something that's already occurred. But here, there are, there are a few new, unique, uh, colorful things he brings to the table. Grounding number one, why would we kill sin? Verse six, because of sin, the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. God hates sin. God doesn't want anything to do with sin. It is that which is impure against his character, against his nature. You remember back in the garden, this great drama, and we might look at that and say, overreaction, they just ate a piece of fruit. And he says, no, I hate sin. I will punish sin. My wrath is pent up. My long-suffering exists today, but my wrath is coming tomorrow. And so inasmuch as we often and we ought to reflect upon the beauty and the joy of the fact that there is now no more condemnation for those of us who are in Christ, that we have in fact had the wrath of God removed, that's not because He didn't and will not express it. We have no wrath of God because Jesus expressed it. Even today when we sin, 
It's not as though God doesn't care. It's not as though he doesn't think about it. He thought about it. And he poured it out on Christ. And that reality is not true for the sons of disobedience. And so it's to remember. It's to remember who we were and to remember who they are. That God is angry at sin. And if we are united with Christ in God... Ought we not to adopt a hatred for sin? A love for righteousness? That we would look progressively more like the Son in whose image He is transforming us? The wrath of God is coming. It is important uh, because... Some of you are reading that and you say, upon the sons of disobedience, I don't see that. Um, Particularly if you have ESV, you won't see that. Um, It's a textual variant. The evidence textually, so external evidence, is very strongly in favor of it being in there. The reason that one wouldn't have it in there is because there are a couple in old texts that don't, and because it's a It's very closely linked to a text in Ephesians that says this explicitly, the sons of disobedience. So it may have been added as a point of clarification. And I think it's wonderful to have it in there. Uh, Whether it is original or not, that makes the point explicit or implicit. The point remains. He's not saying God's angry at the Colossians. He's saying God's angry at sin. And who is it that is characterized by sin? The sons of disobedience. Who we were and who we no longer are. That's his point in seven. The second cause or ground (laughs) is that sin summarizes our past. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. So it's not pretending. It's not lying to one another to say, this is who I was. Oh yeah, I'm a sinner. I I practiced sexual immorality. I was covetous. And you know what? There are battles that rage in my heart to put those things to death. It's not like we, we weren't those things. It's not like we have this stance and we were raised with arrogance and we say, look, I'm not like that, but they're like that. You're like that. No, no, no. We were sons of disobedience. This is who we were, and we once walked in it. But the pattern, the, 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 exact, the exact point that he's making is that we don't anymore. We've been given new life. That point, I think, has been made very clear throughout the book, so we'll move on. Grounding 3 and 4 in verses 9 and 10. It says, don't lie to one another since, because two realities. Once again, these are Common, and there's some new language here. It says, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and you have put on the new man. Now, wait, wait, wait. How am I, or why does Paul say, kill that, kill the members, kill the earthly members? And here he says, because it's already gone. Since you already put off the old man with his deeds. And here we return to a constant, or not to a constant, to a familiar cycle that the imperative is based upon the indicative. We are called to put sin to death because our sin has been put to death. 
It's a call to consistency. It's a call to reality. This is a reality check. We are not sinners when we sin. We're sinners. But we are not sinners. That is not who we are. We are the body of Christ. We are His ambassadors. That is who we are. So live in that reality. This idea of putting off and putting on is very clearly uh, kind of clothing language. So there's another illustration, like the old, dirty work clothes that come off, and then you shower and you put on new, clean, fresh clothes. There's the idea. And that idea may very well be pointing back to the practice in the early church regarding baptism, that you come with these garments on, and they were baptized, and then they changed into new white garments. An illustration, a demonstration of a spiritual reality, something that has gone on. So he says, this one is gone, and this one is put on. Now, another thing that's very important here um, is the, the corporate aspect. So this old man and this new man, this is, you remember, our uh, corporation in Adam and in Christ. So you may say very appropriately and importantly, the old humanity and the new humanity that we lived with Adam. He was our guy. He was the one that qualified us. He was the one whom following made sense, and so we ate and we ate and we ate. Adam is dead. Christ is alive. And it's not just me that's in Christ. We are in Christ. He's forming the new humanity, the new man, Christ. So our connectivity to one another is essential theologically. It's one of the reasons that participation in the local church is one of the most beautiful demonstrations of our union with Jesus. So, we have put off the old man with his deeds. I love that word. It's, it's praxis. It's the, his practice, his habit, his way of life. That's gone. And we have a new praxis, a new orthopraxy, you might say, a new straight way of living that is based upon orthodoxy, straight belief, straight dogma, uh, uh, theology. Okay? Now he expands this idea. So the new man just, he's like, let me talk about that for a minute. So the old man had his practice. What's the practice of the new man? How does he live? How do we live together in Christ? He says, well, let me say two things about the new man. First of all, he is renewed. This new man is being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So this renewal calls to mind one of the other very special times in Scripture that, that this word is used in 2 Corinthians. When he says, our outer man wasting away. The inner man being renewed, 
coming more and more and more to life, invigorated as we take step, step, step closer to eternity, closer to Christ, closer to seeing Him in person and being completely, fully made new. So, renewed. How? I'm 90% confident I have this right. It's always interesting when everybody you read says something different. So, in knowledge, does that mean either by the means of knowledge or toward knowledge? Uh, Nearly everyone that I interacted with, save one or two translations, nearly everyone says toward a full knowledge. You're renewed toward a full knowledge. Now, certainly that's true. We are renewed toward a full knowledge. But it has not his point. One of the beautiful things that's come through in Colossians been, I'm praying that you would be filled with the knowledge of God that would produce a life that looks like Jesus. Didn't he just argue that as well, that the theology, the truth, the knowledge flows out in practice. So it looks like means to me that we're renewed by knowing, that we're renewed by the book, we're renewed by preaching and sermons and and hearing and meditating, and that's toward Christ. That is renewal toward Christ. Now, it's not just what, okay, what knowledge? We have a lot of knowledge present in Colossians, right? Well, how about renewed in knowledge toward, according to, he's building us up toward the image of him who created the new man. Colossians 1, 15 through 20. Jesus created the old world. He's, he made it. He sustains it. He's the end of it. Jesus created the new world. He created the new man. He sustains it, and he's the end of it. So we, that it's, it's really an application of the second verse of the song, that we are being changed into him, the new humanity, Christ. Which is why sin today, together, while we're looking at it, looks ridiculous. Looks absurd. Now, tomorrow, Thursday, doesn't look as absurd, does it? Because of deception, because of lies we believe, because of desires of our heart that we elevate. So it's renewed. And secondly, the new man is unified. And here is a very beautiful point that he makes. There are several pairs, four pairs. Three of them are opposites, uh, one, two, three, and one of them is kind of an advancing idea, an expansion. So why does he do this? There's neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. Those are distinctions. Those are all sorts of distinctions. Those are ethnic distinctions. Those are religious distinctions, cultural distinctions, social distinctions, walls, barriers, dividers, things that cut unity apart. 
And he says, in the new man that I am making, sustaining, and I'm in the end of, there are no barriers like that. There is unity. There is level ground. No walls. The one that's probably the most unique to us would be barbarian Scythian. So a barbarian is, was a Greek um, onomatopoeia uh, that was making fun of the way anyone who wasn't Greek talked. Bar, bar, bar. It's like, they talk stupid. It's not like us. Our beautiful tongue, our beautiful language, and our perfect culture, just this elevation of one culture or language above another. So it's barbarian, and then a Scythian would be a supreme example of a barbarian. Scythian, this is from the, the region north of the Black Sea, and they're the, they're the epitome of unrefinement and savagery, right? Here is an extreme example of a barbarian. Uh, class distinctions, financial distinctions, all of them. In the new man, well, okay, we possess really all of these things, don't we? You and I, we possess Let's just make it more like, uh, let's move 2,000 years. So we possess skin tone. We possess ethnicities. We possess biological sexuality. We possess money and different statuses, different salaries. We possess political persuasions. We possess all these things, don't we? And he says, none of that, none of that rises to the level of our unity in Christ. So he do, he's not annihilating the fact that one is a Greek or one is a Jew. He's not changing our backgrounds and our cultures it's not changing that. In fact, I believe in the New Jerusalem, there's beautiful moments in Revelation 21 that say that we're going to celebrate our ethnicities in the new kingdom. That will be, this is who we are. This is who God has made us to be. But that we would divide and cut and slash and hurt and wound and point fingers and say, no, not them, the gospel's not for them, or elevate oneself or one's spirituality or any of that sort of a thing, that has nothing to do with this. What, ne- what once was an impassable barrier is now reduced to rubble. It's nothing. Christ isn't erasing these realities. He's superseding them. He's saying, I am everything. I am all of the new man. So who we are is eternally, as eternally resurrected uh, people is celebrated in Christ with our distinctions and our individuality. Yes, that's true. But not to the degree that Christ is celebrated. So we could say where there is neither black nor white, Ukrainian nor Russian, homeless nor millionaire, Democrat nor Republican, but Christ is all and in all. And what he's saying when he says all and in all, right? Familiar words, fullness, smacking down the false teachers. Christ is all and in all. That means first, that he is the most important thing about us. That's the first all. 
That's why such a diverse family sits together. That's why we're here, because you're not the most important thing about you, and I'm not the most important thing about me. If it were, we would be sons of disobedience. It's not who we are anymore, family. It's not who we are. He is the most important thing about us, and he is in us. He is here. His Spirit indwells us individually and corporately. That is a very powerful reality. It's moving and it's motivating. So when we go from this place and we're back feeling alone, less together than we are in this moment for sure, remember when you're tempted to elevate a desire for something you know that Christ does not desire. Remember that the sinful behavior, that's a hallmark of the past life. It's not us. Even if you sin, it's not us. So put it off. And if you need help, get help. Let's put it off together as a family. And then remember that the new man is renewed after the image of Christ himself. We're moving there together, even though our outer selves are wasting away. We're headed to something beautiful.